you know, I had that, a pretty abstract understanding of salvation. It's something that happened, you know, when I die and I go to heaven. But when I would speak to mothers in the neighborhood during the height of the gang problem in the neighborhood, they wanted their kids to be saved on the walk to school. Or I talked to another woman, she wanted to be saved from her landlord who was making her sleep with him in order to get the heat turned back on. So salvation is now and in the future. We're talking religion and politics on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of the partisan evangelical church and asking the question, is God really a conservative Republican? And does God require his followers to be? What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Podcasting worldwide on the NPE network at npepodcast.com. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. We're not electing a pastor-in-chief. We're electing a commander-in-chief. With the nonpartisan evangelical himself, Paul Swearingen. Well, welcome to the podcast today. Paul Swearingen here on the nonpartisan evangelical and uh, excited uh, to talk about things. I always like to bring some concepts that maybe not all evangelicals are familiar with or hear on a regular basis. And sometimes we get stuck in our, our own bubbles and we're, we're hearing things from maybe a political vantage point or, uh, or something to that effect. And it's good to hear people that maybe are doing something different than what we might normally know. And and one of the the great people that I have known for a while in my life is Randy White, who is the executive director of the Center for Community Transformation at Fresno Pacific University here in Fresno, where I where I am based out of. And uh, Randy, I appreciate you joining us today. And I think the thing that is has always fascinated me about you is, first off, you're just a good person and a, and a, a gentle soul to be around. But uh, you're somebody that has looked at the call from the Bible to uh, take care of the poor and the widow and and the orphan, and and you put your life into that. You didn't just find ways to touch it. Your your whole life has kind of been about that in some ways. And so, tell us about how that happened and how you ended up moving into a a, a poorer neighborhood and and what that all has meant in your life. Well, sure, and, and thanks for letting me join you. Um, I'm not sure my wife would agree that I'm a gentle, uh, peaceful soul, but uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Whenever I'm around you, you are. so Right, right, right. Uh, well, you know, uh, almost 30 years ago, we took a sabbatical in Oxford, England, and during that time, met friends uh, who were also on sabbatical, uh, but they had been living in a cardboard box in the slums of Manila, and you know what happens when you sh you get to know another couple? You sh you share photo albums. So you look at our photo albums. They were the well ordered and trimmed world of suburbia. You know, children at Christmas time surrounded by all the presents and the grandparents. You looked at their photo album, and it was their kids playing with a cardboard box in the middle of a corrugated tin slum that went on forever and ever, and open sewage running down the middle of the street. And you're saying they were doing that by, by they were doing that by choice as a ministry. 
they were they were a New Zealand couple living in the slums of uh, a squatter settlement, actually doing incarnational ministry. Wow! And I looked at them and I said, Michael, uh, you are amazing people. I've never met anybody like you. This is truly incarnational in the best sense of that word. And I'll never forget his response. He said, um, nah, Randy, this is my best New Zealand accent, by the way. <laughs> we just found out where Jesus lived and we moved in with him. Wow. And that got under my skin, Paul, uh, and rattled around for the rest of our time in Oxford. We came back to the U.S., began experimenting with taking college students from Fresno State down to the Lowell neighborhood and partnering with agencies that were already there, making a difference among the urban poor. And our world got trans transferred, you know, it up, upended, I guess, is the best word for it. Let, let me jump in real quick there, because some people listening to this are from across the country or maybe even other parts of the world. So the Lowell neighborhood in Fresno, tell us about that and why yeah. why you chose that neighborhood. Well, the neighborhood had a, the worst reputation in the city. It, it had been known by the police and many of the residents as the Devil's Triangle, uh, the highest crime highest poverty neighborhood in the city of Fresno at the time. And really had been ignored by the city for a long time. Um, you know, turned a blind eye toward code enforcement, um, all sorts of problems. The police uh, had a bad relationship with the neighborhood. Uh, it, it, the media only featured, you know, all the worst. If it bleeds, it leads, you know, kind of um, attitude. So. But we met people who were here that were happy, resilient. They were, we met neighbors that just belied all the images that were being presented about them. Very strong people in very difficult circumstances. And a couple years after we began begun ministering here, uh, we stood in the kitchen of one of those people and they said, why aren't you guys living here? So we kind of looked at each other and didn't have a good answer. Uh, it took us a year to kind of sort through all of the um, just how you know major a thing that would be for us to relocate from a very safe Clovis suburb to the so-called Devil's Triangle. Wow! And uh, so we eventually did bought a giant old house that's falling down around our ears most of the time, <laughs> and began to do a tutoring program with kids in the neighborhood that lasted 15 years. Uh, we met their families, became involved in a neighborhood association, helped to found a neighborhood association, and just in, became embedded in the life of the neighborhood, um, and then tried to improve the relationship with police, tried to improve the relationship with the city. There was a mayor. Let's see. What was her name again? Um, <laughs> similar to mine, I believe. Yeah, I think similar to yours. Yeah, she utterly changed the nature of the relationship of the neighborhood with the city. So we had a nucleus of leadership in the neighborhood now that could be proactive in, the, in building a better relationship with the city. Uh, she visited during her term at least five times over the course of the first few years. And that was remarkable. So we began to see change. And, you know, you wouldn't recognize the place today if you were to walk through it. Whereas 26 years ago, um, there was gunfire literally every night. Now gunfire is rare. Uh, there were 75 boarded up properties and abandoned homes. Now there are none. 
There were three gangs roaming openly. Um, Now they are dispersed. They have no public presence in the neighborhood. Uh, I mentioned the better relationship with the city. Um, We have new parks. We've got new bus stops. We've got a community garden with 33 plots that neighbors use. Um, Local churches have adopted parts of the neighborhood. So uh, one church on ramps uh, has adopted Dickie Playground and they're leading the remaking of that place. New new courts, uh, new shade structure. They got the old barracks demolished, new baseball backstop, new water feature. The place is a blessing uh, to neighbors now. Now, what people may be asking, though, did, did it become gentrified? Did you, did you bring yeah, right. a, a white suburban influx into the neighborhood? Right. No. So, you know, we've over the years had probably 30 or more people now become strategic neighbors. They joined us here uh, and live on almost every block of the neighborhood. But remember, there are 8000 people who live in this neighborhood. So uh, so no, uh, thankfully. And also the nature of the neighborhood was there were a lot of abandoned lots. And so all the housing that's been done, literally all the housing that's been done has been infill, which means no one got displaced. Uh, we have uh, a community development corporation here now planted by a ministry-minded leader called the Lowell CDC, and they've worked with the housing authority to get two really awful apartment complexes that were the source of a lot of um, crime and prostitution, drug dealing, etc. just scourges on the neighborhood. They were uh, utterly redone. They are gems. They're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. There's new housing for veterans, homeless veterans. Um, we have a couple tutoring programs that have been going now for 25 years. Uh, the one that was at our house for 15 years, we had you know, 30 kids and 20 tutors in our house every week here. Wow. Sitting on every flat surface, as you might imagine, um, <laughs> in the backyard, front yard, porch, you know, did art programs with them, et cetera. Well, after my job changed and I was traveling a lot at one point, that transferred just a couple streets over and it was picked up. And so those continue, the Wise Old Owl tutoring program. Nice. Um, so you're... Yeah, so these are a few things. There are many, many more. I mean, it would take too long to tell you about all the changes, but you would not recognize this place now. And, and all of that grew out of this... I guess, theological premise that God actually cares about place. Mm. I mean, he cares about people, but, but p- because place affects people so much, we had to, you know, most of us have a theology of grace, but we don't have a theology of place. Wow. And so how do you know God cares about place? Well, you know, Jesus entered a time and a place. And he related to those who were being impacted by their place, either by economic or political exploitation or um, just the endemic poverty of the region. Do you ever notice, Paul, how uh, almost every character you meet in the Bible is hyphenated by place? We know them by place. Like, <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Paul, Paul of Tarsus. Mary of Bethany, Jesus of Nazareth. And that told something about those people, right? If you knew, you know, they said, well, how can anything good come from Nazareth, right? Yeah, exactly. 
And that goes on in history, you know, Clement of Alexandria or, um, you know, Teresa of Calcutta or, you know, it, it goes on because we know instinctively that place affects people. Wow. So I am definitely Randy of Fresno and you are Paul of Fresno. And um, we see, you know, in Jeremiah, uh, after the people of God have been pulled ripped out of their homeland and, and carted off into slavery in, in Babylon. They were hoping to go home quickly. And God said, no, I actually want you to settle down in Babylon. I want you to plant gardens and I want you to build houses and I want you to marry your kids off. Uh, I want you to seek the peace of that city to which I've sent you into exile. And I want you to pray to the Lord on his behalf because in its peace, you'll find your peace. Mm. So he was tying their own well-being, their own shalom, their own peace to the well-being of their city. And that recoupling of those two things is kind of what my life is about. And, and I think what us living here in Lowell is about and helping other leaders understand how important it is that we seek the blessing and the well-being and the abundance of the place where we live. And that peace doesn't mean a lack of strife, I think. It doesn't mean, you know, maybe some would say, well, let's just get enough police and let's make sure nobody does anything bad or let's throw them in jail. That that shalom, which is the word you're talking about, or other translations yeah. would say welfare, seek the welfare of your city. That's Jeremiah 29.7 you're talking about. Yeah. Um, talk about that concept of shalom. That's more than just the lack of of bad things yeah. going on. Yeah, shalom may be the most comprehensive concept in, in all of the scriptures. Uh, we have no single English equivalent word for it. It takes at least five or six different terms to embody that whole, the beauty and the depth and the breadth of that. So it, it means peace, certainly like many of us think of it. But it also means safety and security. It means abundance and well-being. Um, one scholar said, he's a linguist, and he, he looked at every time the word shalom came up in the Old Testament, he says it actually falls into one of three categories. Uh, he says shalom essentially means making things the way they ought to be. It's righteousness combined with justice. But he says that gets applied in three different ways. Making things the way, the way they ought to be for people which means that they ought to have enough, they ought to have food, they ought to have clothing and shelter. Making things the way they ought to be in people. In other words, they should be people that are upright and full of truth, not people of the lie. And then making things the way they ought to be between people. Mm. That there would be peace between friends, reconciliation. So this is so comprehensive and it speaks to that flourishing that another theologian says shalom's about flourishing it's it's flourishing in your vertical relationship with god it's flourishing in your horizontal relationship with other people it's flourishing in how you think about yourself your own concept of your identity and who you are and it's flourishing between the way we treat our environment our place mm. that comprehensive flourishing is captured by the word shalom and so that's what we're trying to do in neighborhoods. That's what I'm trying to do in my my ministry at Fresno Pacific and the equipping that we do throughout the city. 
Yeah, it, it reminds me of the New Testament Greek word of sozo that sometimes we translate as salvation, which means some sort of eternal hope, but it actually is much more than that as a restoration of, of people completely, yeah. body, mind, and soul. And and I think that your theology of place is really interesting because I think that's what that's speaking right. to as well, is a, just a complete restoration of, of things as right. they should be. I remember when I first moved to the neighborhood, you know, I had that, a pretty abstract understanding of salvation. It's something that happened, you know, when I die and I go to heaven. But when I would speak to mothers in the neighborhood during the height of the gang problem in the neighborhood, they wanted their kids to be saved uh, fr on the walk to school. Yeah. If they were wearing the wrong color, that was a problem. Or I talked to another woman. She wanted to be saved from her landlord who was making her sleep with him in order to get the heat turned back on. Wow. So salvation is now and in the future. And I think what you're, that word really captures that. I think, and that's that theology of place is such an important concept. I want to come back to that in a little bit, uh, but I do want to, so I think you had young kids at this time, right? As you're moving into this neighborhood. And, and so what was that experience like for you and your wife to, to take yeah. your family into a situation that, that could be endangering? Yeah, it's probably the most common question we've gotten over the last 20 some years um, because it cuts to the core. I mean, we have to know that we're not sacrificing our children on the altar of ministry, right? right? So it took us about a year and a half or two years to make full transition for them. They were in schools and we decided not to uproot their whole world all at once. So we left them there for a year or two, but then eventually made the transition. And my son, Jameson, uh, went to the school that had the worst record in the Fresno Unified School District at the time, which was Lowell. Wow. Um, cried on the way to school and on the way home every day for the first month. And Tina and I would look at each other at night and we would just say, ah, we're bad parents. Look mm. what we're doing. Agonizing, agonizing. Um, but none of Jameson's schoolmates had a ticket out in their back pocket, you know, um, and how is Lowell ever going to change if parents who had privilege um, decided to exercise it all the time? And then we learned also that we had to kind of unlearn a lot of our myths about the school. Um, we began to see that there were beautiful things that, that were happening there. But yeah, I mean, Jameson's classmates at the time were, he was in sixth grade and they were all doing third grade math. Some of them had their heads down on the table sleeping during class and teachers were overwhelmed and doing the best they could. Um, but, you know, God kind of covered our tail there because we had students living with us. One of them was a recent uh, grad who just gotten a job at Fresno City teaching math. So while Jameson's classmates were doing uh, third grade math in the sixth grade, Jameson was doing high school algebra. Wow. We had another student living with us who was a literature major, and she was reading the greats with him. Um, mm. So it's like God was saying, you know, I've got you covered here. Um, and then Jameson learned all these amazing skills from being exposed to kids of different races and different classes, whereas his experience in Clovis was very homogeneous and um, not diverse in any way. And that has prepared him for his ministry today, he leads Youth for Christ with one of the most diverse regions in the United States. And he 
harkens back to those days where he actually learned how to relate cross-culturally or cross-class. And it's been an important, um, I don't know, training ground for him. And it was the same with our older son, Joe, um, who is now a church planter in the Jackson neighborhood, very diverse uh, neighborhood. He chose to plant there. Yeah, I'm actually going to have him on this podcast in the in the Are near future really? here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he actually moved away and lived. I know in Vancouver, maybe somewhere else, but but yeah. felt drawn back in part by, by this experience that your family went through. He did. So I guess the short story is um, we had to relearn some things about what was good for our kids. No one ever asks about the dangers of affluence, right? I, but sometimes <laughs> I think they should. Wow. Because our kids were, they understand deprivation. They understand, you know, poor people are not abstract to them. They have faces attached to that. And so it just, there's no replacement for that. And um, they had plenty of friends from their former school and everything that they're their lives have disintegrated um, because of some of the temptations of affluence. Wow. And, and hearing that, and, and I'm a little bit hypocritical on this because as I'm talking to you, I'm, I live in Northwest Fresno, which is one of the, the, the long time upper end upscale parts of the city. Um, and, and sometimes I do wonder if our kids have been, been a little insulated from all of this, but Proximity. You mentioned proximity earlier, and I, I just think that's that is really what Jesus taught us: is go go amongst those others, if I use my quote word, and and sit with them, and be with them, and understand, and give them value. That that this is the life that Jesus demonstrated to us. Yeah, and well, we found other ways to you know to experience this incarnation of relocation. And so, you know, the, the second question people ask us after our asking about our kids is, well, you're not saying that God is calling all people to relocate, are you? And no, we're not, please don't do that. We don't <laughs> want you to, uh, we, because that would cause displacement. Right. But there are other ways. And I think your family is a good example of how to expose your kids to the issues that are affecting people's lives in a city. So if you're living in a suburb, you can still be very intentional about uh, crossing class and race and understanding those challenges to a city and helping your uh, whole family uh, become immersed in some way in the world of, of what's happening and experience and taste it up close. The way I put it is, you know, if you've ever come out of a restaurant that's frying chicken, you know, you you end up smelling like fried chicken. And so the question is, are you getting close enough to the, the things that are vandalizing Shalom in our city? Mm. Are you getting close enough to those things so that when you go back home that night, the smell still sticks with you and you know where you were, you had enough proximity that it's not an abstract, um, conversation. So there are many ways to incarnate. Yeah. And it's, I think a lot of what we see in the, in the, if I can say white evangelical church, and I know that's not a completely fair term, but sometimes we see taking care of the poor as meaning I'm going to go to 
the local homeless shelter and serve food on a Thanksgiving day or something. And I remember once talking to one of our local caregivers for the homeless and saying, can I bring my church people down on Thanksgiving? He's like, please don't bring your people down on Thanksgiving, please. (laughs) We have plenty of people on Thanksgiving. But the danger if if we do that sort of uh, care as an outreach um, is I think we feel like, okay, we've checked the box, we've taken care of the poor, and like say, but we, we're not carrying that smell with us. We're, we haven't really felt yeah. the pain of people around us. Well, I think part of this is, are we close enough to acquire real inside and personal and relational knowledge of how things are being experienced? So, you know, I talked about the neighbor who was being forced to sleep with their landlord to get the heat turned back on. Now, Right. I can sit with her. I can commiserate about that. I can say that's terrible and I'll pray for you and, and I can be helpful in other ways. But won't what if it all stopped right there? I mean, wouldn't that be a tragedy? Now, I'm a person that knows what department at City Hall to call for certain things. I mean, f- frankly, I know what tone of voice to use when I call City Hall, right? <laughs> yeah. So... That's privilege that the poor suffer mostly from isolation. Mm. That's the greatest poverty and isolation from the very resources and people and networks that can be helpful to give them new options. Right. So I can't let it stop at stop at just personal caring or service. I need to ask about influence. The fact that I know there are some people in my neighborhood that are living in terrible conditions or they're being exploited because they don't have documentation and somebody knows that. And so they're holding that over them. Now, if, if I know those things and I also know who could be helpful in that process or how could we change a policy, economic policy, political policy, whatever, so as to um, offer a real solution, then that's a way of, of um, utilizing that incarnation I was talking about to bring real change. So at some point I've seen this pattern happen in those who want to be helpful is that they service gets them into proximity, but once they're there and they learn the real stories of what's going on, then they want to shape things mm. so that um, new opportunities, you know, are possible uh, things that actually change. So if, you find that there was racial profiling going on through the police in your neighborhood, you can create a dialogue between residents and the police. And we've done that. Uh, So that can be overcome. Or if you realize the media is characterizing your neighborhood only in one way, you know, we can have conversations with key people in the media and invite them into more positive stories to see the good things that are happening or, if there's a lack of relationship with code enforcement, for example, we can, we can create new systems where that's a possibility. So that's, I think, the real challenge now. And in my own work, one of the ways we do that is to say, if, if Jesus was right, the Lord will always be with you. Um, what will stem the tide or at least for the current generation of poor, give them options. Well, we found that it's often uh, job creation and employment uh, readiness. And so a couple of things my organization, the Center for Community Transformation is doing is doing soft skills training for people who need 
to be more job ready. Or we've also done a social enterprise emphasis through something called the Spark Tank, uh, which is a pitch fest that helps churches and faith-filled entrepreneurs uh, start businesses that will hire people that have had employment problems. And over the last several years, we've helped start 48 of these small social businesses. I love that. That have hired, I think it's over 160 people now. And and obviously there's a play on the shark tank there that you guys Yeah, exactly, have. exactly. We <laughs> like the shark tank, but we don't like sharks. And so we call ourselves the shark tank without the teeth. Everybody, this is Paul. Thanks for letting me interrupt this conversation uh, with Randy White about the theology of place, a really interesting concept to think about. Can we bring salvation to people today rather than salvation just being something that happens in the sweet by and by? Um, and so we'll continue this really intriguing conversation in just a bit. But first, I want to tell you about a project I have going on that I would like for you to take a listen to. I recently published a novel called Joseph Comes to Town uh, with the subtitle, When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. It's my theme and text of what would Jesus say about the evangelical right-wing partisan church if he were on earth today? Not to say it's bad or horrible, but to say maybe some of the roots need to be looked at and figure out, is this exactly the way God wants us to think in this season? And so not only have I published the novel, which you can purchase by going to my website at npepodcast.com and checking it out there, but also you can hear the book now as I'm releasing it in a series of audiobook recordings. Uh, three of those are out now, and they're on my nonpartisan evangelical Patreon site. And you can, again, go to the website, npepodcast.com, click on Joseph the Novel, and it'll show you how you can get both the paperback and the audiobook. But I wanted to give you a little sample of what the audiobook sounds like. Here it is. Nice day to give him hell, wouldn't you say, Pastor? Saul's eyes shifted from Patty to Hal. He watched the 60-ish land developer fight the losing battle to keep his light brown comb-over hairdo intact against the blustering wind of the treeless parking lot. Matthew McGinnis, the CEO of the Eastern Oregon Republican Party, followed close behind. Saul paused for a moment. Despite his longtime connection with Hal and Matthew, Saul was aware of the attributes in his friends that caused Patty's hesitance to be around them. Saul gathered his good graces, put on his best face, to greet the two men. Well, thanks for hosting us, Hal, Saul said as Hal finished climbing onto the stage. Wouldn't have it anywhere else, Hal cackled as he grabbed Saul's hand in a much too tight handshake. Saul reached to give Matthew a shake as well, as Hal scanned his surroundings from the high stage like a king surveying his kingdom. Hard to believe these were fig orchards just two decades ago, Hal spoke with great pride. To think the lefty libs and the tree huggers wanted to stop us from building this place. Saul watched as half of Hal's upper lip curled into a sneer. If they'd had their way, Beckering would still be a one-horse hick town. I love that we hold these events here now. Matthew jumped in with a grand sweep of his hand that seemed fitting for his political nature. Isn't capitalism beautiful, boys? Saul nodded a feeble agreement as he fought to hide a familiar discomfort churning in his stomach. Saul struggled with the our-side-versus-their-side view of the world held by men like Hal and Matthew. For these guys, the other side was always bad, stupid, or evil for being in disagreement with our side. Saul felt the contrast between such men and himself was that Saul believed in godly righteousness. 
and his standards were based on biblical beliefs, particularly towards important issues like abortion, sexuality, and drug use. Saul did have a sense that he and his people sometimes overly conflate strong beliefs on issues such as taxes or patriotism with biblical principles, despite no actual support for those stands in the New Testament. Yet those standards are, after all, part of the religious conservative package, and Saul was comfortable to walk in those values and still allow himself to feel less vitriolic than these two. So that's Joseph Comes to Town, the novel audiobook series, which you can get on my Patreon page. Go to my website, npepodcast.com. That's nonpartisan evangelical, npepodcast.com. Click on the Joseph the Novel tab. It'll tell you all the things about the book, the recommendations we have for it, a little bit about it, how you can get three free chapters, and also how you can buy it on Amazon in paperback or Kindle. Or you can go on my Patreon page and for a small fee, get access to the audiobook series as we release them. The other thing I'm doing that's so fun is I'm making a commentary on each one so that you can kind of see where it came from in me, where the stories have been real in my life or in the life, uh, the life of our household with my wife, who was a two-time mayor of Fresno. So it's a really interesting project, one of the really fun projects of my life, and I want you to try it out. Our Patreon page is where we get support for this message of the nonpartisan evangelical, and I would appreciate you being a part of it. So go to the website, npepodcast.com, click on the Joseph the Novel tab, and it'll tell you everything you need to know. Thanks for letting me interrupt this podcast. Now back to Randy White and the theology of place on the nonpartisan evangelical podcast. We're talking with uh, Randy White, who's our guest today on the Nonpartisan Evangelical, the Executive Director of the Center for Community Transformation at Fresno Pacific University here in Fresno. And I love I love the word paraclete, you know, and we use that word for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and and we say, you know, it means one who comes alongside. But but I think again, that's the that's what Jesus demonstrated that 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 Spirit is in us, and we become the paraclete. I think in what you're talking about, we become the one who not only says, I'm going to pray for you and send you my thoughts and prayers, but we come alongside and walk through with them. Amen. Love it. Uh, you theologians, you Greek people who know Greek, I don't know about that. <laughs> I always thought people were talking about some bird or something. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So we come yeah, alongside. We, uh, coming alongside is actually just a great um, image for what ministry in, in difficult places is. Yeah. In many ways, we come alongside, and that speaks to that proximity we were talking about before. Sometimes we may not be able to fix the problem. Sometimes we no. may just have to sit and yeah. and hurt together, yeah. and that That's can really be true. helpful too. We have, um, we have a, one of the issues that we've come face-to-face -face with as we become embedded in neighborhoods like mine throughout the, the city is the level of exploitation happening among the poor with regard to um, predatory lending. So, you know, Fresno has uh, half a million people and we have 68 payday lenders in the city. San Jose has twice as many people, a million, but has only 30 payday lenders. Now that's because Pay lenders prey on the poor. They mm -hmm. are, in my opinion, um, very exploitative in that they follow the corridors of poverty. Um, you know, my office at Fresno Pacific has, there's one intersection 
uh, near where there are eight payday lenders within basically two blocks of each other. Wow. They charge 459% interest. Uh, if, if a person takes one payday loan in a year, they'll take nine. It's been shown. So the more and more we met people who were just enslaved, we, we investigated and came up with a system called Faith and Finances, a nationally vetted system that is designed for people who are low literacy skill and uh, who don't have access to some of the other uh, financial literacy tools that are out there, even even church-based tools, um, Crown Financial or Dave Ramsey. These are those are really good ones, but they're they're designed really for people with assets and you know they're video-based, etc. So was not sufficient for our poorest neighborhoods and. So Faith and Finances uh, is amazing curriculum that's designed for a delivery system that's humor-based, skit-based, but does all the best practices. You work for 11 weeks with each other. You become part of the family, basically, with each other. You're honest with each other. And um, so now we've trained 80 local leaders um, to walk alongside, that's the phrase, and to be allies with people who are really vulnerable we had a really crazy thing happen this last year. Uh, the housing authority asked us to do these courses. And we said, well, we'd be happy to, but you understand that they're a faith-based course, right? And they said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're used to faith-based stuff. We work with faith-based leaders. And we said, yeah, but we should tell you, this is like very Jesus-centered in every lesson alongside the best practice financial literacy stuff. They said the most amazing thing. They said, um, well, you know, we've realized that a lot of the folks living in our housing authority complexes come from that tradition. And we've had a hard time getting them to come to some of our training things. And we're wondering maybe that wasn't what was missing. Mm. This is amazing to me. As we said, okay, well, we'll do a disclaimer at the front end. We'll say, look, you know, you're, you are welcome to participate in these classes. We're not going to ask you to take on our religious position, but we will present our values based because there is a relationship between our core values and, and our beliefs and our relationship with money. And, and then money affects human relationships so much. So these are very much tied together. And so we started doing these courses in housing authority complexes. We had people weeping. Um, we had others saying, I just paid off my last payday loan. Wow. We had people realizing that Instead of going to the, the daily market for snacks and the money they were spending on those snacks, if they had been doing that for the last few years, they could have made the down payment on that uh, trailer that they had been wanting for their business. Mm. Um, I mean, just these light bulbs began to go off. And we realized that just by coming alongside them for that period of time and going that deep, uh, new opportunities were opening up for people. So good. And that's something you can't get in a short financial literacy seminar or where people are just trusting the information to do the job. It's that coming alongside, Paul. And I know this is a long story in response to what you're saying, but it's, good. it's just a great example. So my organization is leaning into that. That's really good. And I, I want to go back then to your talking about the theology of place, because I think that's a, it's an important one. It's you know, you alluded to my wife became mayor, I, and part of that was our journey of looking at the Bible and starting to see that, that verse, Jeremiah 29, 7, saying, in the welfare of your city, you'll find your welfare, that, that our, 
our well-being was tied. And, and some of that was just us liking Fresno. We both came here from somewhere else and we and saying, why is Fresno, why does it have so many problems? Why is it so uh, poverty-stricken? And, and starting to look at those and, and starting to realize that that's our responsibility and that if I lived in a good part of town, but there was another part of town that didn't have it as good as me, that then I didn't have the complete welfare for myself. And so when I see the stories of Nineveh or Jesus talking to the cities of Capernaum, is there something of this that God looks at us as people groups and we are responsible for the whole of that people group uh, and, yeah. and, and we embody that in cities here in America? Yeah. Yeah, you know, a couple stories come to mind. Um, well, f- and to your statement about pe- people living sort of detached in another part of the city, um, the, the reality is, if 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 your city has sort of cancer in its feet, um, you can't run far enough or fast enough from that. You you won't be able to escape it. Our neighborhoods are tied to e- each other. They're an interwoven ecosystem, and so we need to pursue the health of the whole city. Um, cause it's impossible to just, you know, cut part of our city off. Um, it'll affect the whole, but, you know, I think of the scriptures that, that speak to the importance of place. I think the vision, for example, in Zechariah eight of what a renewed city would look like, you know, he describes that as, as old people will sit on their porch with cane in hand and, and the young will be playing in the streets. Now, that was unimaginable to the readers at the time because there had been such devastation in the city. And when we moved into Lowell, it, it, it was really hard to imagine that. But the scriptures tend to hold out this vision of what could happen. Um, I think that passage is profound because, you know, the, it's the very old and the very young who form those edges of the spectrum that are the most vulnerable in any city. And when a city works for everybody all the time and nobody gets left out, as our friend H. Spies likes to say, um, it's the very old and the very young who are often the, 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 the thermometers of that. They're the canary in the coal mine when things aren't going right. Hmm. And when they are going right for the very old and the very young, you know that there is a new measure of shalom in, in our cities. And so not only things like birth and death rates, not only things like, why on the west side is the lifespan 20 years shorter than for people living in the north part of Fresno? Why is that? Hmm. That's an issue of quality of life in many ways. Uh, or, you know, birth and death, uh, birth rates, um, how childbirth is going. We have to be concerned about that. But this vision of a renewed city means that, that the city is working for its most vulnerable. Or I think about... You know, you mentioned Jeremiah 29, 7. That was when they were in Babylon. But think about just before that, what happened to Jeremiah, his his cousin. Jeremiah has been imprisoned because the king doesn't like him speaking negative <laughs> words. And while Jeremiah is in prison, his cousin, Hanamel, comes and said, um, hey, cousin, can you please buy this little piece of land here? Well, now the city is surrounded at that time by Babylon right? The land is going to be worthless, Mm. but the cousin just wants to get some cash and get out of town. And so Jeremiah, the Lord says to Jeremiah, yeah, buy that land. 
And Jeremiah does it out of obedience, but he comes back later. And he says, why are you telling me to buy this land? And he has him go through this public transfer of title and everything. It's a very public event. And God's answer is because I want you to know and to be a sign that, that lands will be traded again. You will return here and, and there will be the buying and selling of place again in this land. This place is worth something and you have to have your eye on the, on the longer goal. And so I think it helps me understand this theology of place even more that our circumstances right now are, are difficult. And of course, as you and I are recording this, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. We're all right. sheltering in place. Um, but we can't have our eye just on that. Certainly a lot of our faith-based organizations, churches are trying to be of help in terms of the, the services that are necessary in emergency and relief right now. But our eye always has to be on development the longer term things that we're being called to do because this place matters. It matters to God. It matters to people. And we are a sign and a, 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 a preview of what could be and what God wants uh, to happen. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I, I love it from sort of a biblical command perspective. But I, when I talk to people who would be on the fiscally conservative side of ideological thought, uh, I say the reason that some there are guys that would like to develop buildings on the north end of town and they can't because you can't charge a high enough rent in Fresno to make the financing pencil out. And that's because all these things work together. If we have these neighborhoods that are impoverished, yeah. they're bringing it down for, for everybody. And so it, it, it behooves us all to make sure all of the city is good. And, and one of the things I love too in that, Randy, is you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 is a Bible verse that a lot of people, it was a life verse for me that I hung on to in really tough times in life where it says, you know, God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Um, and, but that's not a verse that's written to individuals. It's, it's written to a, a city of people, a group of people. And, and, and God is saying, this is for all of you. I have the plans that are good. So I, I that was one thing that I had to learn somewhere along the way. That's not a verse for an individual, although we can certainly grab onto that promise for ourselves. But that's yeah, a promise that's really for a true. group of people. That's really true. Isn't that good? So you are now at Fresno Pacific and are running the Center for Community Transformation, which you really uh, pioneered in a lot of ways. And so what, what do you do? How are you pouring in through using university resources to see our, yeah. our city transformed and teach that model to others? Well, 25% of my time, I'm a professor at the seminary, and so I teach courses in community transformation and lead a degree program, a master's program uh, by that same name. But the cool thing is we can involve those students in the community portion of my work. And so the Center for Community Transformation is, it's a program of the university that sort of acts like a, a nonprofit uh, anchored at the university. And we engage in all of these forms of community transformation. So my students can benefit from engagement and practice. They're not just, this is not armchair stuff. They're actually participating. But the majority of my work revolves around eight different initiatives. Um, our social enterprise initiative, which I mentioned, our financial literacy initiative, which I mentioned. We also have a certificado program that trains Spanish-speaking leaders in community transformation. Uh, and then we do a number of city shaping activities. We're running uh, the uh, the mayor's uh, anti-human trafficking task force and the EOC's 
uh, Center Valley Against Human Trafficking have tasked us to do uh, human trafficking research. So we've helped link 23 different organizations uh, that are anti-human trafficking organizations in the Central Valley from Merced to Bakersfield. And they're for the first time sharing data and we're learning from that data. And so they can make policy decisions uh, based on actual empirical data. And that's never happened before. We're not even sure it's happened in the U.S. before. Wow. So uh, data is a real problem in human trafficking. Um, and it's really at the core of the fight. So we're doing that. Um, we're doing a micro enterprise uh, training system. We're launching it in May, actually, uh, hoping desperately that shelter in place will be over. But who knows? <laughs> So for people who are just getting out of prison, they can start their own uh, sole proprietorship and provide for their families. Uh, we do um, soft skills training, as I mentioned before, and I'm the convener for the mayor's faith-based uh, partnership uh, cabinet, which is 26 different leaders of different faith traditions that advise the mayor and uh, represent their in the interests of their constituencies uh, to city hall and the mayor utilizes their wisdom in policymaking and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I was delighted to be on, on Ashley's uh, community advisory panel during her administration. And uh, so Mayor Brand has continued to be open to the influence of the faith community and have been working with them on that. So those are, there are more things I could add. That is, you know, <laughs> Other than that, day. you're not doing much. Yeah, we're not doing much. <laughs> well, that's, that's good stuff. And I, and I know you're, even convening people in this time of of sheltering in place and COVID nineteen and and yeah. trying to give input to how people continue to do their their tasks well in the nonprofit space at this time. Yeah, this is um, people have said that this this crisis that we're in the COVID nineteen crisis has there's sort of a blizzard effect where we all hunker down and we hope that it all blows over. Um, but after the blizzard may come a long winter. Uh, for many nonprofits, and, and frankly, many may not survive because there'll be a new economy out there, uh, different delivery systems. Some nonprofits don't have the internal capacity to handle those changes. And if that's true for many of those, there actually may be what what these leaders are calling a little mini ice age, and uh, that could go up to 36 months. And so, if we can't help local faith-based, Christ-centered nonprofits recalibrate during this period, uh, we're going to see the loss of what, what they were, the benefit they were providing to the community. So I'm trying to convene them and help them um, share their stories with each other, learn from each other, and get the latest updates on some of the resources available via the CARES Act, etc. cetera. Uh, so we'll see. And we want to support that process in whatever way we can use our assets and, and, uh, and be of help. Awesome. Well, Randy, thank you for what you do and uh, and more so for being able to bring us your experience so we can we can see this stuff in action. I think you've showed us what it's like to, to what it means to move to where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. Well, we're learning a lot, Paul, for sure. And that has never stopped. So, well, that's good. All right, Randy, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for bringing us your story. My pleasure. Thank you.